Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time that we have to reflect on your word. We're thankful that uh, you have not left us alone, but you have reached out to us in Christ and and you have given us your truth through the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. I I pray now, God, that your spirit would be at work uh, in this time that we have, that you would guide uh, our time, that you would guide my heart and guide my mind. Uh, We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, August 14th, 2015 was an extraordinary day for my family. On the evening of August 14th at 6 p.m., we gathered to celebrate the 50th wedding anniversary of my parents. Of course, the 50th anniversary is a is a great occasion. It's a time for celebration. It's a time of joy. We were celebrating the, the love that my parents have for each other, the love that they have for us, their children and, and grandchildren. Many friends and family came from various times of their life and various places in the country to join us for this in, in this gift of celebrating God's faithfulness to them, their faithfulness to each other, their faithfulness to their family and their friends. It was really a beautiful event. And yet, uh, the event was marked by sorrow. Because that morning, at around 10 a.m., my wife Mindy's wonderful mother, Jill, passed away. She'd been battling cancer for a a number of years, and she lost that battle the morning of my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. What a day that was. It was a day that held within it this profound mixture of joy and of sorrow, of celebration and loss, of the highs and the lows of life, contained, kind of focused all on this one day. We are in a series here at ECC this fall called Growing Pains. And, and in this series, what we're doing is we're reflecting on the way that God disciples us at various seasons of life. So we're kind of taking chunks of life stages and we're reflecting on what God is at work doing in our lives during those particular seasons. And this week, we're talking about the adult years, these kind of decades of our lives that we spend as adults. And as I think about being an adult, for for me, August 14th, 2015 stands as a symbol of the experience of adulting. Because the longer we go through life, the more we experience the highs as well as the lows, the more we experience the joys as well as the sorrows. I think we can sum up the adult years by saying this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The adult years are marked by joy and sorrow. We experience these different, varied extremes of experiences, the the polar opposites of varied emotions. And, And for us, we experience that all in one day. 
but but really that one day is kind of a symbol of what we experience as we go through our lives as adults. Now, of course, there's a, a huge scope of being an adult. Uh, in our congregation here at ECC, we have young adults, we have middle-aged adults, we have more seasoned adults, we have single adults, we have young marrieds, we have marrieds with kids, we have divorced adults, we have widowed adults, we have empty nester adults, we have employed and under, uh, unemployed, white collar and blue collar. We have all kinds of different adults in our congregation and, and we're at different seasons of being adults. And I'm not going to be able to speak to, to everyone's particular experience of exactly where you might be in life. I, I speak as a 50 year old employed uh, man with kids, teenage kids, kids moving into college. So I'm kind of in that season of life. So I, I can't speak to everyone's experience, but I, I do think that that wherever we are, whatever stage that we're in, in our adult lives, we experience some commonalities in these adult years. And I think we can summarize some of these commonalities by saying that the adult years are marked by a growth in responsibility. Those responsibilities might come in the form of, of job responsibilities as we're in a career and we're kind of moving up the ladder of our career. It might be experienced in, in having kids and being responsible for our kids. It might be experienced in being homeowners and different ways, financial, uh, um, financial responsibilities and family responsibilities come to kind of mark our adult years. We also have experiences of loss, as I've already mentioned. This can take the form of the loss of parents. It can take the form of the loss of a job, the loss of dreams, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of financial security, the loss of relationships, friends that we've had for years that sometimes we fall out with and and life takes them away from us. It's inevitable as we go through the adult years that we are going to experience loss. With the growth in responsibility and experience of loss can very well come a growth in anxiety. Right? The more we feel the responsibilities, the more we experience the sorrows of life, we may very well grow in our sense of anxiety in life. What's life going to bring me next? What pains do I have in front of me? What challenges are there on the path ahead? As the financial pressures grow, the anxiety of having kids might grow, or the anxiety of not having kids might grow. The anxiety of being married might grow. The anxiety of not being married might grow. We can grow anxious as we grow through the adult years. And then, of course, hopefully, what's happening in the adult years is we're having a growth of maturity. We're, we're, we're learning about God. We're learning about ourselves. We're learning about life and we're, we're growing in our maturation. But in all of these things and all these different experiences, the highs, the lows, the joys, the sorrows, the anxieties, the responsibilities, the maturity, I want to ask the question, how, how does God disciple us through these adult years? What is his purpose for us in these years? What is God doing in our lives 
in these decades that we spend as adults? What is he doing in our lives through the challenges and the difficulties and the sorrows and the joys and the anxieties? What I want to do this morning is turn to a passage that that symbolizes, I think, well, God's discipleship in our adult lives. So if, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up with me to Genesis chapter 32. This, this passage recounts a, a very odd episode in the very chaotic life of Jacob. Jacob is one of the patriarchs of Israel, one of the four fathers of Israel, the family line through whom God was creating and building his covenant community, the people of Israel. And Jacob's life is quite a life, but it's not the oddness of the story that attracts us this morning to Jacob. And the reason I want to open up this story, it's not the chaos of Jacob's life that draws us here. But I do think this this strange story symbolizes God's work in our lives. So what can we learn about God's purposes in our lives as adults from the story of Jacob that we find in Genesis 32? Well, the first thing that uh, we need to say about Jacob is Jacob is not a good guy. I'm not going to Jacob because he's this amazing model of being an adult who really had it all figured out. In fact, he's pretty much the opposite of that. We're not going to Jacob in order to learn from his successes. We're going to learn, we're going to Jacob to learn from his failures. We're going to to learn from his experience in a lot of ways what, what not to do, but in that what God is doing in our lives. So Jacob is, is not a a good guy. He's not the kind of guy that if you knew him in life, you, you probably would not want to be very close friends with him. He's not the kind of guy that we would like very much if we knew him in life. We wouldn't trust Jacob. Uh, we would think that he was arrogant. we think that he was self-centered. We would think that he was unpleasant to be around. And, and do you know why we would think that? Because it's true. Because this is the, the kind of guy that, that Jacob was. He, Jacob is all about Jacob. Jacob is about looking out for Jacob. He is about looking out for number one. Jacob is about getting ahead. Jacob is about winning. Jacob is about defeating others who get in his way. And we can see this from the very beginning of Jacob's life, literally at his birth. We're not going to look at the passage itself, but I'll just summarize a couple of scenes from Jacob's life where we can see the starting with this scene of his birth. You might remember that, that Jacob was a twin, and his twin brother was named Esau. And in the Israelite culture, being the firstborn son was really important. Because if you were the firstborn son, that means that you would be in the position where you would receive the blessing of your father, which was incredibly important in this society. It would mean that when the father dies, you would be the one who receives the bulk of the inheritance. It also means you would take the father's place and you would become the patriarch of the family. So being born first is really important in Israelite society. 
in the scene of the birth of Jacob and Esau, Esau is born first. Esau emerges from his mother's womb first. But as he is being born, as Esau is emerging from his mother's womb, Jacob is fighting to be the firstborn. He is fighting for his position. He's holding on to Esau's ankle. Even as Esau is being pulled from his mother, Jacob is holding on tight to the ankle, following him out from his mother's womb. And from this, they looked at Jacob and they gave him a name. And it's a name that really marks Jacob's character. Because Jacob means supplanter. Now, what does it mean to to supplant? This means Jacob is the person who wants to replace others. He wants to take the position of others. Jacob, if if you've got something that that Jacob doesn't have, he's going to want to take that thing. If you've got a position that Jacob doesn't have, he's going to want to take that position. Saw this at his very birth, and we can see this play out throughout his life. Jacob is the supplanter. This is who he is. So Jacob is, is not content with losing out on being the firstborn. And later in his life, we have a, a couple of scenes where he supplants Esau. One, he steals his birthright. You may remember that scene. He Esau is, is starving, and Jacob gives him a bowl of soup as a trade for his birthright. And then another scene, he, he steals the blessing from Esau, from his father Jacob. And he does this with the, the help of his mother. This is not a healthy family system that we're looking at here in this passage. His mother helps him to steal the blessing that, that was to be Esau's as the firstborn. Jacob takes it from him. Then after he does this, he runs from his home in order to go live in another land with his uncle Laban. And there, living with his uncle Laban, uh, Jacob works to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, who he falls in love with. And he works for seven years to marry Rachel. But then Laban himself deceives Jacob, and he tricks Jacob into marrying the wrong daughter, a a different daughter. He he tricks uh, him into marrying Leah, and so Jacob then has to work another seven years to marry Rachel. This is not a healthy family system that we are talking about here. So he works and he finally marries Rachel. And so he has two wives, Leah and Rachel. And, and with Leah and Rachel, he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, the head of these tribes. So God is at work to, to build this covenant community Through this family, this is not a healthy family. This is not a healthy system that we are looking at, but God is at work in this family to accomplish his purposes. In these years, as he's having these children and he's living with his uncle Laban, Jacob is building up his wealth. And one of the primary ways that Jacob builds up his his wealth is by stealing his uncle's wealth. This is not a healthy family system that we are looking at here. He he takes the best of the flock for himself and he leaves the worst of his flock in a scheme for his uncle Laban so that he builds up his wealth at the expense of his uncle. The supplanter strikes again, stealing his uncle's wealth. And then after many years, 
God tells Jacob that he wants him to go back to Israel. There's a problem with going back to Israel. The problem is Esau. Jacob supplanted Esau. Jacob stole from Esau. And now he's being told to go back to where Esau lives, to go back to the land of Israel. What will Esau do? How will Esau respond? Will he attack? Will he seek to destroy Jacob? Will he fight Jacob? That's certainly what Jacob would do. That, that's certainly what his response would be. So now we get to the scene that kind of sets up the scene that we're going to talk about as we turn to Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. So they're all, he's on his way back to Israel, and it says this. Jacob sent messenger, messengers ahead of his uh, ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, as he refers to Esau, that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob sends a sufficiently sucking up message to Esau. He calls him, my Lord. He says, this is all that I have. I'm sending them. I'm bringing gifts to you. He's trying to take a a posture of humility towards Esau. But I don't think it's really genuine humility. I think he's working the angles because this is what Jacob does. So he sends this message, but then what comes back to him is that Esau is coming and he's bringing 400 men with him. And Jacob assumes that Esau is going to come to enact his revenge. And Jacob is afraid. He's afraid of Esau. He's afraid of losing what he has built up. And we see this in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 32, and then we'll skip over and read verses 22 and 24 as well. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And then skipping on to verse 22 to 24, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, and Jacob was alone. So I want you to imagine this scene with me, the lonely figure of Jacob sitting in the dark, sitting by a fire. All of his possessions have been sent over the Jabbok River. All of his family have been sent across the river. 
And there Jacob sits alone. He has fear in his heart. He's filled with anxiety. He is trying to manage his life. He's trying to continue to control his life. He is desperate to make life go the way that he wants it to go. Jacob is wrestling with life. And there he sits by the fire, plotting, planning, worrying, wrestling. Adults, have you ever felt this way? In whatever stage of life you might be in, does this bring up some feelings within you, things that you can relate to? Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever felt burdened by the responsibilities that you carry? You felt anxious, trying to control life, trying to fight off the threats to your life, trying to keep the sorrows away, trying to manage life. It's a heavy load. It's a heavy load to try to control our life. It's a heavy burden trying to win. And as Jacob sits there by that fire, Jacob feels the weight of this burden in his fear and in his anxiety and in his, in his scheming and in his planning. And I bet that there are many of us who are listening to this message who feel the same way. You're feeling the burden of life. You're feeling the anxieties of responsibility and your jobs and your families and your relationships. You can relate to Jacob sitting by the fire. You can relate to the sense of losing control as life, as we go through it and through our adult years, brings the joys and a lot of the sorrows. So Jacob is sitting by the fire, planning, plotting, scheming, fearful, anxious, feeling the weight of the burden. And then we have a bizarre twist in the story. As we read in verse 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. There is no context for this. There is no setting up of who this man is and where this man has come from. There's no warning. It just seems that Jacob is just sitting there, and all of a sudden he is attacked. A bell sounds. This guy jumps from the top rope out of the shadows onto Jacob. And now Jacob, what we know about Jacob is it's go time for Jacob. Jacob is not just going to sit there and let this man attack him. If we know anything about Jacob, we know that Jacob is going to fight. Jacob is going to struggle. Jacob is going to do everything that he can to win, to defeat this person that has jumped out of the shadows. He is going to battle with the stranger from the shadows with all of his might. And he does. 
And what we're told in the story is that Jacob is winning the wrestling match. We see in verse 25 where it says that the man who is wrestling him, the man saw that he could not overpower him. He could not overpower Jacob. Of course he couldn't overpower Jacob. This is Jacob. They battle all night and Jacob is winning because he is exerting the power that he has exerted all of his life and he is winning. He is using the strength that he has depended upon all of his life and he is winning. He is using the cunning that he has wielded all of his life and he is winning. He is exercising his will that he has exercised all of his life and he is winning. He has gotten ahead. He has become rich. He has achieved success. He is winning. He has worked to manage his life, to conform life to his purposes, and he is winning. Now as he's wrestling this man, it seems that he is going to emerge victorious. Once again, Jacob is going to gain victory in another battle in his life. He's going to overcome another adversary. He's going to supplant yet again. But then we read this as verse 25 goes on. It says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Have you ever dislocated anything on your body? I have. When I was a teenager, I had a bum knee. My left knee was was messed up. And the, the way that it would express itself in being messed up is that my kneecap would dislocate. And it hurt to have a part of your body out of place of where it's supposed to be hurts. There is pain and there is agony and there is helplessness. And now Jacob is experiencing this pain and this agony and this helplessness. He has his hip wrenched out of its socket, wrenched out of place, but it's not done by the the man grabbing Jacob's leg and, and twisting it. The way that it's done is the man simply reaches out and he touches Jacob's hip. And in touching Jacob's hip, that hip socket is wrenched out of place. In this moment of of pain, in this moment of agony, Jacob realizes something extraordinary. He's not wrestling a man. All night, he's been wrestling God. This is made clear a couple verses later in verse 30 where Jacob names this place Peniel and and he names it that because it means to see in the face. And as it says in verse 30, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Jacob realizes he's not just been wrestling with a man. This man from the shadows was not just another human being like Jacob. This was God. And Jacob has seen God face to face. All night he hasn't been wrestling a man. All night he's been wrestling God. And in fact, what we see about Jacob's life is that all his life 
he's been wrestling God. His whole life has been a fight. It's been about striving. It's been about supplanting. His whole life has been a battle to be first, a battle to win, a battle to be in control. And this battle has not been against humans. This battle has been against God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth. It's the battle of the self that resists surrender to God. It's the battle of the self that resists laying our life down before God, presenting our lives to him, surrendering our lives to him. And in this moment, Jacob's hip is touched and it is wrenched. Jacob realizes that he is defeated. For the first time in his life, Jacob is defeated. But it's Jacob. So he doesn't give up easily. As we read in first, going back to verses 26 to 28, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What does it mean that Jacob has overcome? Does it mean that he won in this struggle with God? Does it mean that he overpowered God? No, Jacob doesn't overpower God. Jacob can't overpower God. It was demonstrated that just with the touch of his finger, God could wrench the hip of Jacob out of place. How did Jacob overcome? He overcame by holding on to God. He overcame by seeking the blessing of God. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Jacob's name is changed from the supplanter to the one who wrestles with God. In this reminder that he would now bear the name that makes it clear that in his wrestling with God, God has overcome him. Even though he has, in a sense, overcome God, the way that he overcame God is by surrendering to God, by seeking God's blessing. For the first time in his life, he was seeking God's blessing. Israel means he wrestles with God. And then in verse 32, or excuse me, chapter 32, verse 31, we read this. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So what do we learn about God's purposes in our adult lives in this strange event in the life of Jacob? What can we learn about how God disciples us as we go through the decades of being adults? Something that I have discovered in my own self is that so much of my adult life is a wrestling with God. It's a contending with God. It's a struggling with God. 
It's that longing for control that I see in Jacob and find in myself. It's that longing to have power over my own life that I see in Jacob that I find in my own heart. We wrestle with God. We wrestle for our own lives. The responsibilities that we feel, the anxieties that we feel, the joys and the sorrows, these are ways that we are trying to protect ourselves on our own terms. How often we try to, through our own resources, be masters of our own lives. And I see it in Jacob's life. I find it in my own heart. We wrestle with God. We resist him. We resist turning our lives over to him. We resist submitting to him. We resist trusting him with our own selves. So much of our adult lives is lived out in this wrestling with God. But what God is doing in these years, what God is doing through our experiences, what God is doing through our losses, what God is doing through our anxieties, is he is bringing us to the place where we experience what one writer has called the blessed defeat. The defeat that is the blessing. To weaken our resistance, to overcome our struggle against him. God is at work in our adult lives to cause us to limp. Jacob asked for God's blessing, and God gave it to him. But what was it? What was the blessing that God gave to him? The limp is the blessing. The limp that Jacob carried from that campsite after that night of wrestling with God, the limp that he carried for the rest of his life was the blessing of God on Jacob. See, God blesses us with the limp. This is the symbol of Jacob's blessed defeat. It's the defeat of his will. It's the overcoming of that willfulness, that striving for control and power, that desire to be the master of his own life. In that limp, Jacob surrenders to God. In that limp that he carries with him the rest of his life, Jacob is reminded of God's strength. He is reminded in that limp that God is greater, that God is the Lord, that God is worthy of our trust, that God is worthy of our lives. And so it is with you and so it is with me. Through the joys and the sorrows, through the highs and the lows of being adults, through the responsibilities and the anxieties, God's purpose is to bless each of us with the limp. The limp that marks our defeat. The limp that marks our weakness. The limp that reminds us over and over and over again that God is God and we are not. And so as we close, I, I want to ask you, to ask yourself this question. Am I limping through life? 
we know that phrase, limping through life, right? In the way that we usually use it, the context that we use it in our culture, limping through life means life is not going very well. It means that we are struggling in life. But from the story of Jacob and the way that God works to overcome us, we can see that with God, it's the opposite. Limping through life is the life of blessing. It's the life that you are called to. It's the life that I am called to because it's the life of surrender. It's the life of laying down ourselves before the Lord as we recognize that our lives are not our own. And we lay down our our anxieties at the feet of God and we give control of our lives to God. As we live out our adult years, as we live through these adult decades in the struggle with God, the great blessing that he gives to us is the limp. And I want to encourage you to accept the limp. Receive the blessing of God. Lay down your control over your lives. As we grow in our maturity, as we live through the experiences of lives, God is calling us to lay down our lives that we might limp, and that we might limp for others, that our lives might be in service to God and to our neighbor, not about ourselves, not about number one, not about supplanting others so that we can get ahead, but about losing the wrestling match with God that leaves us with a limp, that our lives might be his life, that he can use us for his purposes, for the sake of our neighbor. As we close our time, I want to just give you a moment to wherever you are, to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And we who are adults, to reflect together in this time about our wrestling with God. How is God at work in your life to overcome his resistance to you? How is God at work to defeat you, to bring you that blessed defeat? How is God causing you to limp. And in this moment, in this quiet, place yourself before God. Receive the blessing of the limp. Father God, we thank you that in your grace, in your kindness, in your goodness, and in your love, you touch our hip. You give us the limp that declares that you are the Lord. God, I pray for all of us who are hearing this message, but particularly for we who are in these adult decades. I pray, God, that as we bear the anxieties of life, that as we live out the responsibilities that we feel, that as we have the losses and the sorrows as well as the joys, that you would be at work in our hearts to give us the blessed limp. 
that we might limp through life for your glory, that we might limp through life for your purposes, that we might limp through life as a sign of our submission to you, and that you might use us as we grow to understand who you are, as we grow to lose control of our lives, that you might use our lives for the sake of others. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. And we give you thanks for the blessed defeat that you bring to us. I pray that you would use us for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.